Well, please open with me in your copy of scripture to the gospel according to Mark. The gospel according to Mark. This is the second book in the New Testament. And the index at the front of your Bible will help you get there if you're not as familiar with the scriptures. It's a long Bible anyways with 66 books. And uh, I find the index comes in handy for me quite often. Well, the first 90 days in a new job is where you're expected to lead. The first 90 days are very important for anyone on a new job, particularly in a position of authority. The first 90 days is important for establishing certain priorities. Well, last week, Mark introduced us to Jesus as the son of God with voices from the page of scripture, Isaiah and Malachi, and then, and then John the Baptist, as if off the page of scripture, announcing the Lord's arrival. And with a voice from heaven, the, the, the father himself speaking of his beloved son in Jesus's baptism. Well, today we come to the ground, as it's been said, with a bump among normal people in the course of ordinary life, right where we live. And so we'll begin with the gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verse 16. Our text will take us through chapter 2, verse 12, but we'll only read up to verse 7 for now. Today, Jesus makes an introduction of his own at the start of his ministry. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting his net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went to Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, He entered the synagogue and was teaching and they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy one of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, Jesus convulsing him, excuse me, and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? And he commands the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons and the whole city was gathered together at the door And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was dark, he departed and went to a desolate place. And there he prayed. 
And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go out to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for yourself cleansing that Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not, ent- when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive, but God alone? Well, what does Jesus have the authority to do? And are we okay with that? There's a lot of talk about authority these days. There's authority of the governor to limit gatherings of 50 or more or to close commerce of certain kinds. There's the authority of doctors who can order this or that test or make this or that prescription. And we're so thankful for our medical and healthcare professionals, especially these days. There's the authority of teachers to direct the work of students. Yes, even you students uh, from afar. My kids are being directed by the authorities that are their teachers through their laptops these days. You can usually tell what kind of authority a person has by what they're doing with it, by, by what they do. So if, if there is a man in uniform in, in an intersection directing traffic, you have yourself I don't know if this is a technical term. You have yourself a traffic cop. I assume that traffic cops do more than that, but you have a traffic cop. Just an example. Well, we we humans have a certain relationship with authority, perhaps most us Americans. On the one hand, we are desperate for authority. We, We love and listen to our celebrities and to our politicians. We can't get enough teaching from our gurus, from Oprah, from Dr. Phil, from Jordan Peterson. Uh, Some no doubt are closer to the truth than others, but their fame proves our love for authority. They have unquestionable authority in the lives of some. We love our politicians. If we're for them, then they can do no wrong. And yet we Americans have a certain aversion to authority as well. We pester it. 
We question it. We don't always like it. It doesn't matter the office someone holds, even if it's the president of the United States. If we're not for them, then they're always wrong. And that reflex isn't all bad. Our founding was in the context of the abuse of authority, which was profound. And our whole system is set up to check it. And our suspicion of authority in terms of the political realm is actually part of the design. So we do our jobs by being uneasy about this or that direction, even as we seek to apply Romans 13. And there are limitations to the legitimate use of authority of the state. We may not all agree on the nature or extent of that authority, but we're all sensitive to the question. Authority is a good thing, and we're good with it, as long as it doesn't cross a line, or at our worst, as long as it doesn't cross us. We humans have a love-hate relationship with authority. Well, what we have in today's passage are a sequence of events that took place on four separate days in the early ministry of Jesus. We don't know how many days that transpired exactly, but if you watch the sun, you can see four separate days. And it's in this run of events that we can see a certain agenda set out by Jesus and by the author of this book. Among other things, among other things, his primary purpose was to establish his authority. To establish his authority. To point at the passage and suggest that authority is here is to see the deepest embedded subject in the passage. You might read a passage like this and point to it and think uh, mercy is the primary thing or, or following Jesus is the first and primary thing. And chronologically, that would be true. But the deepest embedded subject that's driving this sequence of events is the matter of establishing, or shall we say rather demonstrating Jesus's authority. This did not take place necessarily in 90 days. We don't know how many days it took place in, but these are the early days of Jesus's ministry where he's getting a particular thing done. This matter of authority is going to have everyone asking questions about who he is. And I want you to be asking those kinds of questions about who Jesus is as well. I want you to be provoked by the authority of Jesus. I want you to be more uncomfortable with his authority than you have ever been before. Asking questions about Jesus and who he is is, is welcome at Heritage Bible Church. Even if you grew up in a, a Christian home where maybe it was assumed you were rolling with all this stuff, dare I say, especially if you grew up in a Christian home, we're for you wrestling with questions of Jesus's identity. It means you're taking him seriously. So I want you to be more uncomfortable in this sermon, in this series than you have been before with Jesus. And I want you to be more astounded by his authority than you have ever been before. And being uncomfortable is often, and for most of us, the first step to being astounded with him. For after hearing this text, you will need either to walk away from Jesus and reject him as a problematic authority figure, or you will need to walk his way. You will need to walk in his path. Well, what does Jesus have the authority to do? And are we okay 
with that. We'll explore this question by following Jesus, by tracking with Jesus across the first leg of his journey, across four separate days for what will be four separate movements in this morning's sermon. We'll begin on a walk by the Sea of Galilee, where we find that Jesus's ministry had small beginnings, small beginnings, verses 16 through 20. Passing along the sea, uh, the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Jesus is a big figure, but his movement begins so small. This is not Jerusalem. This is not a great city. There is no throne here. Instead, we find Jesus wandering around a rural body of water, hollering at men in boats. That is a small beginning. It is also for us an instructive beginning. It teaches us about Jesus' authority. What is the first thing he does with it? He calls people to himself, people with names like Simon and Andrew. What does he ask them to do? Simply, he asks them to leave everything. And this involves in the first place, giving up fishing. For these two, fishing was not a hobby. It's a lifestyle. It was more specifically a way of life. It was their livelihood. And they are to leave it and to follow Jesus. Look at what he asks the next guys to do. So he he calls them, they immediately follow him and he walks a bit further. He saw James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their, their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. For James and John, fishing just wasn't just their business. It was a family business and and a family business apparently of some size. They had hired servants. No doubt Father Zebedee had been rearing his boys to love this work and to be good at this work and one day to take over this work. It's the smell that they knew. It's the trade that they knew. And so it had been for generations and they are to leave it all. Fishing, the family business, even their father. You could say their future as this was their future. What is Mark teaching us here? That following Jesus means leaving our families and our businesses and these kind of specific terms? I don't believe so. They will go on to commandeer a boat later. So it seems that they still had access to some of the fishing gear. Simon and Andrew will return home a few verses later, as we've already read. So it seems they hadn't forsaken family in a way that they weren't expected to show back up. We also know that it didn't happen this abruptly. In other gospel accounts, we know that these two or two of them were engaged as John's disciples. And there's history here. Mark has put this together in a certain way. He's compressed the story like any of us would as we, as we tell a story of this or that occasion in our own in our own life. And what is the lesson in this account? Well, Mark writes in order to teach us something about Jesus's authority, Jesus's authority over our lives. 
is total. It's total. Relationship with our family, and we may remain in our businesses, but we do not maintain the same relationship with either. And if ever comes down to following Jesus and keep, or keeping our business and our family, then we follow Jesus. That's the path we're on. And in a dozen ways or more, Jesus will test that allegiance. Which means in calling us, Jesus doesn't just ask us to leave sin, but to put him first before every other good thing. We leave even the good things in this world God has given to us for his sake, our ultimate good. Don't miss that. Following Jesus isn't just about giving things up, but it is in the first place about getting him. He does not say, get to work for me. He says, come follow me. Come follow me. Jesus' call is total and it's also personal, which he means he will have all of us or we will have none of him. Be convicted of sin in that claim. He will have all of us or we will have none of him. There is no partial allegiance to Jesus. There is no half following. There is only full stop following Jesus all the way. And that invitation is open to you, as intimidating as it is. Well, why did Jesus start here by the water calling fishermen? On the face of it, he is teaching us that to follow him is to fish with him for men. And it's fine enough for us to understand it that far. It is, it is clear enough. We're joining the new family business. His call is total, it's personal, and it's in that respect vocational. We're all in vocational ministry. We have a new job. But there's another reason he started here by the lake. To fulfill scripture, listen to these words on the lips of the prophet Jeremiah. Remember how we'd suggested from Mark's quote of Isaiah early on that the Lord is coming to lead his people out of bondage in a new and greater exodus. Hear these words now from Jeremiah 16. Therefore, behold, the days are coming. Speaking of the same days declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I have given to their fathers. The Lord is speaking about a new exodus, he's just said, we're no longer going to talk about how I led you out of Egypt. We're going to talk about how I've led you out of, for them, Babylon and Assyrian captivity and brought you all the way home. How will he gather his people? Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, that they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters that they shall Hunt for them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of 
the rocks. The Lord's fishing expedition long promised has begun in Jesus's walk about the lake. Isaiah spoke of the Lord coming on a straight path for his people. uh, Jeremiah speaks about this fishing episode and a hunting excursion. One way or another, through one image or another, he will get us. Jesus has the authority to call us because Jesus has the unique authority to catch us. He has the authority to catch us. Friends, the coronavirus has us locked down, but be encouraged that the gospel is not locked down. There is no intermission to this work of fishing. Our businesses might be closed and our vocations upended, but our fishing licenses, they are not suspended. In fact, it is good and well fishing season. We're supposed to keep six feet away from everyone, right? Well, that's a whole lot closer than we often are from our neighbors. You could be socially closer through a gracious text message that comes by surprise where you check in on someone from work that that wouldn't be expecting to hear from you. Then maybe you are socially when you're closer than six feet. There's all kinds of work that can be done. Jesus calls us to himself and he He makes us fishermen. What a great privilege this is. Oh, that we would be found six feet from our neighbors, digitally or even physically. The gospel is plenty clear from that distance. Jesus' call is total, it is personal, it's vocational, and it's viral. He intends the thing to multiply, and it is compelling. They didn't drop their nets like robots. They dropped their nets because they were compelled by the authority of Jesus. We can be glad Jesus's ministry had a small beginning because you and I are small potatoes. And if you feel awfully small in the world and in in no doubt, if God is properly to you, great, then you would feel small in his universe. But here Jesus calls two men by name in a boat. And so he calls to you today one by one, and he calls us to be fishers of men. Jesus's ministry started small, but it did not stay that way for long. Verses 21 through 39 now, it's a new day. We find ourselves in a small village, a stone's throw from that lake. I don't know how else to put it. And maybe it's too soon as they say, but Jesus friends is a viral sensation. He is a viral sensation. And I'm not talking about the Rona tickling your throat uh, as you wake up or as I cough in the night and wonder, is it got me? Uh, I'm talking about the effect of Jesus's authority on people. What began with four men at this seaside is going famous. From verses 21 through 39, we see Jesus address three major problems, a teaching problem, a a spiritual oppression problem, and a sickness problem. For first, a teaching problem. Jesus will be in several places on this day, but he begins in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he begins by teaching. Verse 22, they were all astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Apparently, they didn't much like their teachers 
or more likely, they didn't know what they were missing until they heard Jesus teach. A second problem was spiritual oppression. Verse 23, the next verse, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Jesus rebukes the spirit with a word and the man is cleansed and the spirit is cast out. No surprise, verse 28, at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And from there, it's off to another address to address another problem, sickness. They head to Simon and Andrew's house where their mother is ill, mother-in-law is ill, and Jesus heals her. She has a fever. Some of you aren't feeling so well for a variety of reasons. Some of us will catch this virus in ways that knock us on the floor. Uh, it may take some of our lives. Here, Jesus heals a woman with a fever. And they didn't have vaccines or antibiotics or ways to mitigate even these kinds of more common and easier to address problems of our own. It's very serious. She's ill with a fever. Jesus heals her. What a relief. She gets up and begins to serve them. Word gets out so that by evening, they were bringing all kinds of people to Jesus. And the whole city was at the door, verse 34. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. False teaching, spiritual oppression, sickness. Not unrelated problems. What happened after Jesus started teaching? The demon came to him immediately. Why? Because Satan, the protagonist of the Bible, knows that teaching is where true life and death is decided. It was teaching that Adam received from God in the garden, and it was teaching that Adam believed from the mouth of the serpent when he led his wife astray and the whole human race into sin and death. It's why Paul will speak of the teaching of demons when he writes to a young pastor, Timothy. Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. We're going to see that kind of stuff on the page in this gospel. But even listening into Paul's words to that pastor, what kind of teaching was he talking about? It always surprises us. And the teaching in Mark will surprise us as well. What kind of teaching was Paul concerned about for the early church? A teaching of those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. The demon's strategy for suffocating out thanksgiving in the heart of the people of God is to make God out to be more of a, a rule maker than he actually is. Is to create rules around things that God has given for our pleasure and our enjoyment and our thanksgiving and his praise. The demon strategy is to make us feel more spiritual. This danger is common among us today. It's in my heart and all of our hearts it was common in the first century. It's why Paul wrote these words. And it was common on the, on the ground of first century Palestine. And Jesus will address it in the course of Mark's gospel. We'll see traces of this through Mark 
Learning to spot demonic teaching is a crucial part of following Jesus on his path. It is also one of the hardest and one of the most controversial responsibilities. It's why Jesus teaches and is, that's why when Jesus teaches, he is confronted by a demon because teaching is at the heart of the health of the church and Jesus's mission through the church. They say this, naming Jesus by name, Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of Israel. They know who he is. They name him in order to exercise a kind of authority over him, but they have none. Jesus doesn't need some incantation to deal with him. He merely speaks and the man is freed. Where does sickness fit in? With teaching and with spiritual oppression? Well, simply, sickness is that especially physical evidence of the effects of the curse of sin on the world. Not that this woman with a fever had sinned to get her fever, but Adam's fall, which introduced sin into the world, brought a curse on the world and every trouble and difficulty in this world follows from that moment. Sin, excuse me, teaching, spiritual oppression and sickness all go together and they're bundled together for a reason. This is why the crowds are coming to Jesus. They were fully aware of their problem and their need, thus not the extent of it. They're coming to Jesus because Jesus is making plain that he has the authority to free us. He's the authority to free us from these things. What does this have to do with discipleship? To be caught by Jesus is to be freed by Jesus. This is where the fishing illustration breaks down. More like we are men underwater caught for life on the land where we belong. But this 24-hour period on our page is not over yet. Jesus has another lesson for discipleship on the path that we follow. Watch what Jesus does the next morning. Verse 35. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed. He went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said, everyone is looking for you. The people are showing up. Jesus must be doing something right. And his followers know better than he does where he needs to be and what he needs to be doing. He needs to be riding the wave. This is our instinct, our dangerous instinct as American entrepreneurial Christians in a market-based economy where it is so easy to flock to one church or shall we say live stream or another. Even when we lead, we are oriented fundamentally around the crowd in the course of our normal work as we should be. Our economic reality, this market situation is a good thing, not a bad thing. We're the bad part of it that brings bad things out of us in any system. Even when we lead out there in the world, we're oriented fundamentally around the crowd and that's appropriate. If you lead in a business, you may be leading against the flow in the context of your company, but you are doing so for the market 
where you're directing it for your own sake or where you think it's going or where you think that it is or where it is. But the market decides the matter. Look at all the fishes, Jesus. Don't miss this opportunity. How does Jesus respond? Verse 38, he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. What is Mark's purpose for us as Jesus's disciples reading this gospel account? Well, their purpose is to teach us that the crowd does not direct the mission. This is an early lesson for Jesus's disciples and for us from Mark and from Jesus. The crowd doesn't direct the mission. The father does. Jesus loves sinners. So we care about sinners and we want many to be added to our numbers. But the father directs the mission. Things have to be in order. Jesus must listen himself to his own father and not the crowd. And so Jesus' disciple must listen to the father and not the crowd. Jesus is not in the business of building a crowd. He's been in the business of building a church. He builds it with a cross. And note what kind of crowd shows up at the cross. Jesus is not in the business of building a following but of calling followers. And what a follower is will take on definition in the gospel. He is not in the business of numbers, but in the business of names and of repentance and faith. And that's good news for you and me because you and I aren't a number to him. Christianity and church is not a pragmatic enterprise. In fact, Mark's gospel will show us time and again that the whole thing is actually upside down and it upends all of our natural instincts. We should be very suspicious of our natural human instincts in the course of church life and Christian ministry. Jesus looking to his father when everyone was looking for him is a very early indication to us that this path It's not an ordinary path. But there's more than prayer that's being taught here. Something about Jesus's purpose. I'm sure you caught it. Apparently his purpose for coming to us is not always the same as our purpose for coming to him. Let's go. I need to preach. That is the purpose for which I came. His main work will involve speaking and announcing and heralding. Perhaps the healings themselves served some deeper related purpose. So far, Jesus' authority has raised questions, questions about who he is and questions about what exactly he is doing here and who exactly he is. Jesus' authority is more complicated than we thought and it gets more complicated Still, Jesus, his ministry began with small beginnings. He has become a viral sensation. And now in verses 40 through 45, we see that he is a walking contradiction. He is a walking contradiction. The last day closed out with this summary. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. From all that traveling and healing, 
Mark has selected one encounter to foreground. An episode in which Jesus has apparently put himself in range of a leprous man who comes to him and asks to be healed, to be cleansed. Jesus touches him and he's cleansed and charges him to go to the temple authorities to show himself to the priest as a proof. He's to be quiet about it otherwise, but of course he is not quiet. What is leprosy? Leprosy was a skin disease, highly contagious. If you touch someone with leprosy, you could get leprosy. What were lepers to do? Lepers were to self-quarantine. So many, so many ideas here are so close to home uh, and uh, there'll be more of them in the weeks ahead. Uh, they were to get away from people. They were to get far away from the temple. In other words, they were not allowed to be near God. Is that because God would get leprosy? No, it's because leprosy was a particularly clear manifestation of the reign of death in this cursed world. And God cannot live in the presence of death. That's why it's not just a sickness, but called uncleanness or better impurity. And for this reason, a leper had to be both socially distant from the community, but also spiritually distant from God. And it was that matter of spiritual distance from God, from the temple, that was the most painful to the leper in his quarantine. And it's the main reason others would need to keep their distance. To touch a leper was not just to make yourself vulnerable to the sickness, the disease. It was to make yourself impure. And then you had to go through some rituals and time before you would be acceptable in the presence of God or near him again. Well, this background is what makes Jesus's next action so curious. What does he do with the leper? He touches him. Which is to say, Jesus has the authority to contradict social norms. He touches the leper. And in his healing of the leper, he allows the leper to be reunited with his family. It's a beautiful thing. But that is not the main thing. He also apparently has the authority to contradict spiritual norms. You see, in touching the leper, Jesus has just reversed the curse manifest on that leper's skin. The leper's impurity, curiously, does not spread to Jesus. Jesus's purity spreads to the leper. The man is put out of the temple, but Jesus has just brought the temple to this man. What Jesus is saying in this miracle is that Jesus has the authority to bring us to God. And that's why he sends the man to the temple in order for a leper to be readmitted to the temple or society under the Mosaic law. He had to show certain signs and go through a process and be cleared by the temple authorities and declared by them as clean. It may be as well that Jesus is sending him as a proof of his own Messiahship and arrival to the temple priest, but it's minimally for the man. 
And that is why the man would not be quiet. Jesus tells him to be quiet. Best we can tell to not unduly accelerate his own fame. As he's moving from Galilee to Jerusalem, a process he means to take three years. But the man could not not talk about Jesus. Jesus has authority over his, his sickness, but apparently not his mouth. Of course, Jesus could have kept him with his divine power from speaking. But there's also something for us here that we can't not talk about Jesus. He knew exactly what Jesus had done for him. And so when we come to grips with all that Jesus has done for us in bringing us to God, even with the help of this account, no, we can't be silent either. I don't know what lies ahead for us in this pandemic, but I do know what lies ahead for us all apart from Christ. Our paychecks change, but thank God the message of reconciliation with God remains. Jesus brings us to God because Jesus brings God to us and not death or sickness can separate us from him. Take comfort in that if you're on his path. Jesus's authority is more complicated than we might have at first thought. And Mark is making us think. Jesus is confusing us at times, is he not? Well, thankfully, on this final day, he is about to make something perfectly clear. We will find that Jesus' authority is something that we need more than we realize. We come now to the heart of the matter, the heart of the matter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. You'll remember where we left off in our reading at the head of the sermon. We were back in Capernaum after a few days. Crowds gather around Jesus so that Jesus can hardly move and no one can get to him. Four men have to bring a paralytic. They insist on bringing him to Jesus and they're gonna dig a hole through the roof at what was probably Jesus's own house. So thanks a lot, guys, uh, tearing a, a hole through the roof. But they were, that, they were that urgent about it. Not terribly considerate. Yet, verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. We have seen the responses of the crowds to Jesus. They don't likely totally get what Jesus is doing in saying that. But there are some who do get what Jesus is saying and their response to Jesus is very different. Verse six, now some of the scribes that were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive God? Sins but God alone. Oh, these guys are students of theology. They have very good theology. If you sin against your brother at home or sister at home or parents, I'm not in the place to forgive that sin in that relationship. Your parents or brother or sister is in a place to forgive that sin. If you sin against God, it is for God to forgive you. I can point you to the word where forgiveness is offered and found but it is for God to forgive you. This seems like an obvious overreach for a mere man from Nazareth, an overreach of authority. What is Jesus's response? Verse eight, immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves and said, 
Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, take up your bed and walk. You see, they had good theology, but they had the wrong identity marker for Jesus. Now here's Jesus's purpose and all that he has done to this point in today's sequence of stories and why we have taken this large chunk together in one sermon. Here is where it's been leading. The point of his miracle healings and demon exorcisms. Verse 10, but that you may know that the son of God has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. And neither has the world except in this man who is God, Jesus. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. He has the authority to catch us, to free us, to bring us to God. And how can he bring us to God? But by dealing with our sins, he has the authority to forgive sins. It is a bold claim because it means he is God. Controversial for that reason to this day. It also means that we are sinners against God. It indicates our deepest problem. Yes, Satan is the protagonist in the Bible's story from Genesis 3. But you and me and our sin is our biggest problem, not Satan. Whatever we come to Jesus to get, this problem of our sin is what he has come to take. Without forgiveness of sins, healing from sickness is only a stopgap, for we are dying anyways. Without forgiveness of sins, there is no final deliverance from any spiritual oppression only pretending until we die. How can Jesus do this? How can he offer this? How shall we say legally, can he even do it? Sins are a debt against the one sinned against. Forgiveness has to be offered, but where does the penalty go? Even if he is God, how does he do it? That's another reason for this offensive claim. What becomes of sin? Consider me with me, Jeremiah's words again. Behold, I'm sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, that they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters and they shall hunt for them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts and out of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols. They've filled my inheritance with their abominations. Therefore, behold, I will make them know this once I will make them know my power and my might and they shall know that my name is, is the Lord. God's purpose in the first Exodus was to demonstrate his glorious power and that we might know his name, the Lord. And that remains his purpose. 
but sin remained in the people even when they no longer remained in Egypt. And this new exodus will involve a dealing with that matter of sin. It would be punished before God brought his people into their land. How would it be punished? We find that out in this gospel, according to Mark. Jesus is calling people to himself and he is catching fish. But the punishment for their sins will not fall on them, but on the Lord himself. Jesus will take the punishment that we deserve on himself. Stay on this path with me and we will learn more about what that involves. For now, hear this. Unless you know that Jesus has authority to bring us to God and forgive sins, you will not follow him. Unless you know that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, you will not follow him. This may not be the first thing that you would have expected Jesus to teach you about himself, but it is the first thing that we need to know about him if we are to follow him on the path that lie ahead. The first thing we need to hear from Mark's gospel after Jesus' initial introduction last week is not follow me. That is what Jesus says to us. It is a word of his authority underneath that command, which he has made and laid perfectly plain to us in the course of the story. He has made the paralytic to walk so that you and I might know that he has the authority to forgive sins. And I pray you know that forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a savior who has this authority. We're not only okay with it, we thank you for it. We recognize that for Jesus to command and to exercise this authority means he gets to exercise authority on every other corner of our life. And that's intimidating, but it's comforting as well. We thank you that he has fished for us and that he has caught us. And we pray to be faithful fishers of men in his mission. Father, help us to know the privilege that it is to belong to Jesus this day. It's in his name we pray. Amen.